Not sure if you're in the category that is looking forward to this afternoon and thinking, great, finally the World Cup is over. Or if you're maybe thinking, oh, you know, I could do with another couple of games to watch just to... Um, I don't know if you're into football. Uh, I probably used to be more into it than I am nowadays. But one of the things that has struck me in recent years, if you ever listen to the commentary in football matches is the number of completely useless statistics that they bring up. Has that struck anybody else? And suddenly, you know, before you would watch a game and this is what's happening, now everybody has to have a category as the oldest goal scorer or the highest number of passes or, you know, this is the this sort of oldest average team since 1960 whenever. And it just goes on and on and on. I think that reflects something that is happening in a wider level in society. As we sort of almost have this, this pursuit of what some have called this pursuit of superlatives. Everybody has to be the best or the oldest or the highest or the tallest or the youngest or something at something. Even towns and cities. The problem is not everybody can be, so more and more they invent kind of random categories covering an obscure sort of sphere of influence just so that you can have that label of the oldest or the second oldest or the third youngest or whatever kind of define that to define people. I don't even know if that struck you. I think it's part of our celebrity culture that everybody needs recognition for something. Um... So I actually didn't think in advance, but I'll have to try and find a category for myself. No answers, please, on postcards. But if this is a bit annoying when you're watching a football match or a bit maybe kind of almost laughable in society, it can be a terrible uh, occurrence when we apply this to Christian ministry. And we would be wrong if we thought we're not affected by this general cultural trend. And so more and more, we start to kind of find labels for ourselves, which give us ourselves a sense of importance. We're the biggest church in the town. We're the mission organization with the most workers in this particular area. A number of years ago, I, I, I knew a pastor from England, and he told me he, he had been the pastor of the biggest rural church in England. And I didn't actually know what that meant. It's, like it's, it's, a, it's another category to be important. We need to be aware of that. And we need to guard against it. And the passage that was read to us this morning, I think, will help us with this. If you don't, are not normally with us, we're continuing a series that we've been doing in John's Gospel. And we've come to this little episode, which is often almost forgotten because it's, it sits in between two of the, the most iconic encounters of Jesus with different individuals. The last couple of weeks, as Phil preached, we've been looking at Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, this important Jewish leader of his day. And I don't think we'll be getting there next week, but somewhere down probably in the new year, I think we'll come back to Jesus' meeting with a Samaritan woman, as told in John chapter 4. But nestled in between these two encounters is this episode that was read to us. 
And it's almost striking as it begins. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. If you read through the Gospels, you find that very often Jesus has this habit of every so often just taking his disciples aside. And he often does it at what maybe from our criteria would be the most inopportune moments. Because suddenly, if you read back over chapters 2 and 3 of John, Jesus has done his first sign, changing water into wine. He's kind of cleared out the temple. He's, got a, he's made a name for himself. Suddenly all Jerusalem is talking about him. This important Jewish leader has come. If you want to seek a sort of the headlines, this was the moment to do it. If you want to set up a big movement, you might think, humanly speaking, now we've got to strike while the iron's hot. And what does Jesus do? He takes his disciples off to the countryside. And you see this many times, if you read, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, at the beginning of this, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, it was Jesus had taken his disciples aside. Mark chapter 135, just before that we're told, lots of people come to Jesus, people are getting healed, things are happening, and Jesus says, no, no, let's, let's go somewhere else. And so I believe this morning that this episode is largely speaking to those of us who would claim to be Jesus' disciples, who need to sometimes just take a step back from the buzz and everything that's going on as Jesus prepares us, as he was preparing his disciples, to continue on his ministry, but in his way. So we're told to go to the Judean countryside, but also they don't just go anywhere. Suddenly we're told as well that John was also baptizing. Now John, we've already met him in chapter 1 in, in the Gospel of John. He's not the author of the Gospel. He's John who was, uh, has become known as John the Baptist. But actually, if you were to study his life as told us in John's Gospel, I would say you might want to call him John the Witness. Because when we're first told about John in chapter 1, it says this, John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness and to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So that was kind of John's purpose. And as Jesus goes off to the the countryside with his disciples and they're starting to baptize people, John was nearby, he was baptizing now, I do not believe this was by accident, because I don't believe Jesus did anything by accident or by chance. So suddenly in the midst of this kind of, everything's happening, everything's going good, there's suddenly these two groups close by, both baptizing, and you can probably imagine what happened. We were here first. We are the best. We are the most important. Well, we're not told that that's exactly what happened, certainly not in those words, but we are told that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We're not told all the details of that discussion, and if we're not told it, it's probably because it's not the most important point. Almost certainly the idea of purification and baptism, but I suspect from the context, this Jew may have been coming to John's disciples saying, okay, who's right? Who's the better? This guy over here with his disciples or or you? And John's disciples suddenly kind of, oh, hold on, what's what's happening here? 
And they go to John, and they say this, Rabbi, they're talking to John here, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and everybody's going to him. What do we do? We've got to put a stop to this. So there's a potential conflict. <coughs> Excuse me. And in this context, I want us to just take a few minutes to see how John rep- responds. Because I think in this passage, we see the greatness of John. But John can also help us as we think about what is the essence of the Christian life as witnesses and bearing witness to the light. How do we combat this tension, or this, sorry, this temptation to be the biggest or the best or the oldest or the youngest or the smartest or the whatever category we, we search for? So how does John help us? Well, three things just very briefly. And it strikes us again as John is told this problem. His disciples are all worried. You know, everybody's abandoning us. And John replies this. He doesn't even address the direct problem. He says this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So it's almost like John is saying to disciples, before you get on your hobby horse and think, this is our ministry, we were here first. John emphasizes, if you are what you are or you have what you have, it is because it has been given to you from heaven. And then he says this, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. When we first met John in chapter 1, we were told he came in verse 7, and then in verse 19, just after the verse that Phil read at the beginning, it says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, if you don't know the context, the context of that time was a, a lot of what, what we call messianic expectation. There was lots of people running around saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I'm better than him over there. He's, he's a false, but I'm the one. And John seems almost unique in saying, I am not the Christ. He was very clear about that from the beginning. So the first thing that will help us as we battle this temptation to be the biggest or the smartest or the, the coolest or the funniest or whatever is affirming and knowing who you are not. Books and reams have been written today about discovering your identity and who you are. But actually, as Christians, understanding our identity begins with understanding who we are not. And John constantly repeated this. He repeated it to the Jews who asked him. He repeated it to his disciples so they would remember. And I suspect the constant repetition just helped him repeat it to himself and constantly remember and resist this temptation. Josh Moody, commenting on this passage, says this, effective Christian witness begins with a negative proposition. Much of contemporary Christian witness is ineffective because it forgets this. I find that quite striking. Much of Christian witness, contemporary Christian witness, is 
ineffective because we forget this. Now, we don't live in the days of John. We don't find many people running around the streets in Antrim saying, I am the Christ. But what we do find, sadly, often, even in our Christian circles, is this desire to be noticed, to be important, to be the ones that everybody's talking about. And actually what John is saying is we need to have a sense of our own unimportance. I know that's hard because we all want to be important. We all want to be significant. But we're not actually comparing ourselves to everybody else around us. What John is teaching us is don't look at me. Don't ask him. I'm not even important here. You need to be looking to him. And so because John had that clear, it was actually very easy for him to see all these people leave. Right from the beginning, John's first two disciples. Does anybody know the name of one of John's early disciples? You all do. You just, maybe just don't remember it was John's disciple. But in John chapter 1, when John first said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we're told that two of his disciples kind of up sticks and followed Jesus. One of them is called Andrew, often considered the first disciple of Jesus, who then brought Simon Peter. But actually, he was first John's disciple, but John said, go. That's fine. So when the disciples, when John's disciples come and say, you know, what's happening here? All these people are abandoning us. They're going over to, to these folks over here. It's almost like John's response is, you know what? That's just made my day. That's, that's just made me so happy. Because John's, when we have that sense of our own unimportance, but actually the understanding of how Jesus is, our joy comes from seeing others follow Jesus. And that's what we need to be about. So we need to keep remembering that, and we need to keep reminding ourselves. Because we all fall into that temptation. So just to remember, it's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about Antrim Baptist or the Baptist being better than others. What we really need to be asking is, are people being helped to see Jesus clearly through our lives and testimony? That's success in the Christian world. And John got it. So John, first of all, affirms I am not the Christ. So if everybody's going to Christ, I'm just happy. That's enough. But secondly, this well-known phrase that many of us have heard in verse 30, as John explains to the people, to his disciples, uses this image of, of a bride and a bridegroom. He says, I'm not the bride, and I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom's kind of friend. And my, his joy is my joy. His happiness is my happiness. I'm not seeking to take anything away from him. And he says these words, he must increase, but I must decrease. Can I just suggest quickly, as we think about this, affirming who we're not, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's just a helpful evaluation tool for every area of our lives. As we seek to grow as Jesus' disciples, we need to be constantly 
evaluating every area of our lives and saying, where am I seeking my own identity or my own importance? When I decide how to use my time or the priorities that should really drive my life, am I looking to see where is Jesus taking more and more control there and increasing? Or am I seeking to do the minimum so that I can keep control of most of it? You see, when you think about how that plays out, he must increase, I must decrease. It's actually a constant challenge to keep that going in our lives. But it's also a challenge for growth. Not just a negative thing, it's not just kind of looking, but it's also, it helps us to understand that we will never reach a point where we do not need to decrease more, if I can say it like that. Where Christ needs to get more of our lives to be more important, to grow in my life. He must increase, but I must decrease. So as we affirm who we're not, as we evaluate our lives in the light of Christ and that he must increase, the third thing that I think John helps us here, I would say like this, is just learn to glory in who Jesus is. John, for all his importance, we never see him again after this point in John's gospel. It's almost like he got his fulfillment. I must decrease. And he just kind of disappears from the plot, as it were. And I think John would be happy at that. I think John would be like, great. So there is confusion between commentators as to whether John's words finish in verse 30, and then it's John, the, the gospel writer, who continues or whether this is all part of John's speech. It doesn't ultimately make a difference to the content. But whichever it is, these are John's last words in the Gospel of John. Sorry the confusion. I didn't choose the names. But what John the Baptist, or as we'll, we'll, we'll come to see him today, John the Witness, as he learns and plays, sees how this plays out in his life, He learns to glory in who Jesus is. There's an internal, almost excitement in his life which flows out as the external witness. And so he says, he who comes from above, he's above all. He takes us to the heights. He says, you're comparing somebody who comes from above to somebody from the earth. We're nothing. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but, but here's one who's just so much beyond anything we can imagine. Here's one who is truly excellent in all he does and all he is. Here's one who is the very truth of God. Here's one, <coughs> he says, he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. It's just getting that focus of who Jesus is. And here's the point. The more we exalt Jesus in our minds, in our meditation, in our, in our conversations, the more joyful is our service for Him. You see, that was the secret of John's service. The more we understand the glory of Christ, the more joyful 
our service for him. You see, if Christ isn't everything, then service can become a chore. It can become a burden. Oh, I have to do that again. Another Christmas. Another Christmas programs. Can't wait till it's all over. And yet the more we grasp who Christ is, the more he fills our thoughts, the more he fills our lives, the more joyful our service for him. Right at the end of this passage, <coughs> he says, the Father, sorry, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's almost that kind of, ooh. But it reflects fairly similar to almost verse 18 that Phil was talking about last week. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So John has gone from the glories of who Christ is, but it's kind of like it brings it back down to earth. He earths it again for us. It says, whoever believes, means truly believes, not just says, well, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian as a sort of label, but he says, whoever truly believes living out this Christ-centered reality has eternal life, which is really one of the themes of John's gospel. How do we have that eternal life, not just kind of a miserable life on this earth, but life that will never be lost, never end? But then it's curious, he doesn't say, whoever does not believe. He then says, whoever does not obey. In other words, whoever does not live the reality of this life of service before me, who shows no signs of this life, he says, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there's actually a great challenge for those of us who profess Christ, as we learned today, Christmas, Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, to have that drive to allow Him to be the most important. So whenever we fall into the temptation of thinking, are, are, are we the best? Are we the hippest church in Antrim? That's an irrelevant question. The real question is, are people able to see Jesus through our life and ministry? We're on the eve of another new year, almost 2023. How did we get here? It seems like three months ago, it was almost the year 2000, and we were all panicking about the millennium bug. Do you remember that, those of you who are over 30? <laughs> and suddenly we're in almost the 2023. I don't know if you have the habit of making New Year's resolutions. I, I don't, personally. But most New Year's resolutions are about, this year I'm going to do something better. I'm going to be kind of more fit, or I'm going to be more sort of loving or kind to my spouse or whatever. May I suggest perhaps an alternative resolution for us for this year? May we, as God's people and as His disciples, let's resolve to become less so that He can shine more brightly. So, less of Andrew, less of Josh, less of whatever. 
so that Christ in us can become more and more. Let's just pray a minute. Father, as we seek to serve you and be your disciples, Lord, we're very conscious that, that so often we're tempted to kind of promote our serve ourselves using worldly criteria. Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for even the times we spend comparing ourselves to others of your disciples, trying to get one up on them instead of encouraging them and blessing them. Lord, ultimately, it is not about us. So help us not to be a church, not to be your disciples who give lip service, but actually live a different reality. Lord, help us to learn from John, who came as a witness and came to bear witness. Lord, may that be our highest aspiration for the new year, that many people will see you through us. Please help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.